don't you have a seat and I'm going to invite the interns up because I forgot last service. I'm not going to forget this time. Y'all come on up. So we have uh, every year, this time of year, we have a whole new um, group of interns that come in and uh, we like to think of them as this awesome blood transfusion <laughs> to our souls and to our hearts. And it's just so encouraging to, uh, to be able to work alongside of them. And so I want to encourage you to get to know them, uh, to introduce yourself, to ask them how you can pray for them. They are serving all throughout different ministries in the church, do a phenomenal job. Um, but they're in school too, need encouragement. And so words from you, inviting them over maybe for a meal, um, asking them how you can uh, be praying for them would mean a lot to them. And so, well, we're going to just pray for them, kind of a commissioning. And if you feel comfortable, stretch your hand out and I'm going to pray for them right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, these amazing uh, young men and women. And uh, Lord, thank you for, um, just think about, I think it's Psalm 139, um, that you knit them together. Uh, you decided how they uh, would interact with people, their personalities, um, whether they would be extrovert, introvert, um, whether they'd like music or art, um, the different things that, are, that they love and things that they would say, no, I don't like that at all. Um, God, you've created them uniquely. And Lord, we are so thankful for the way the body of Christ works um, is that, God, you have given them uh, your spirit and the way they represent you individually, nobody else can do that in the world. And so in that sense, Lord, it's such a gift for us as a church to be able to serve in the, the same body of Christ together, to serve on the same front lines for the kingdom of God. And we ask, God, that you would um, speak to them in the night hours, Lord, in the, the night watch of their own time when they're going to sleep. God, I ask that you would visit them with dreams, that you would uh, speak encouraging words, Lord, that you would um, just make them so aware of the presence um, of your spirit in them and around them. And Lord, I pray that we would um, just be able to serve them as well and encourage them. Thank you, God, for the, just the wonderful uh, gifts that they bring to our body. And God, we thank you for the ground that is going to be taken in the name of Jesus and in your kingdom, Lord, places you've already gone, but Lord, you've actually made it work that Pleasant Valley will move forward in certain ways with them in ways that we wouldn't without them. And so we're so thankful. Um, we pray your blessing in them in Jesus' name. Amen. Give me a hand. Thank y'all. Go. Awesome. If you have a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 15. As we continue our study, we're on Revelation 15, and some of you may be here for the first time today. Welcome. Glad you're here. And you may say, oh my goodness, I missed 1 through 14. And I want to tell you that the way God works, the way the Holy Spirit works, is you didn't miss a thing. Because He knows you. He knows what you're thinking about. He knows what is worrying you this morning. He knows the anxious thoughts you may have. Uh, whether it's work, family, school, you name it, Jesus is so acquainted and understands exactly what you're going through. And it's a good reminder because the church 
churches that received this letter of the revelation of Jesus Christ, they had families too. They had jobs. They had things they were doing and they had a world they lived in that probably felt very similar to ours in that on the outside, what we see in the world is that it kind of looks like Christianity is on the decline as far as popularity, if you know what I mean. There are books coming out right now. There's a lot of, you could just go out there and, and do a search today on Google to say, what is, what's happening in the churches in the Western world? And they would say, ooh, it's on the decline. There's a book coming out. I've, I've got it on pre-order. It's called The Great Dechurching. So what's happening? What's happening out there? Is God afraid? Is he worried? And they felt the same thing in the first century. And so John said, you need to hear this word. You need a revelation of Jesus. And so this morning, wherever you are, whatever you're feeling, John, the Holy Spirit, Jesus wants us to experience, and this is what we've been doing the whole time in the book of Revelation, a greater reality than this, than this right here. A greater reality than what we can see, a greater truth than what we hear in the world. And so we come to God's word and we say, yes, I want to be encouraged. And my, one of my best friends in high school, his name is Paul Birch. And uh, I would always tell, I always tell my wife, I'm like, yeah, I saw Paul Birch. She's like, I know you mean Paul Birch when you say Paul. Just quit saying Paul Birch. But I just, that's how I've always said it, Paul Birch. Because I know Paul Omdahl too. And I've like, there's other Pauls in my life. Um, but I would, in, in high school, Paul, I need to be encouraged. He's like, man, Chad, Romans 8. Romans 8, man, man, Chad, Romans 8. He'd always start with man, Chad. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I'd be like, yes, there we go. Or maybe that one you've used before, Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, you know, I'm not one of those who's a diehard to say you can't say it when you play sports or something like that. But I think it is important to remember that Paul was in prison when he wrote it <laughs> and to feel what he was feeling and say, okay, I can face, I can face what's happening. But I would be willing to wager that you probably wouldn't turn to Revelation 15 to say, you know what I really need today? I need some bowls of judgment. That would really encourage me. God, can I just, I want to meditate on bowls of judgment. So if you know me at all, I, I like to imagine this kind of stuff. I like to think that I can go to God's house and I can sit down and I can get in the kitchen and I just pull up a chair. And this is how I talk to him. And I want to, I want to talk to him. I want to hear what he thinks. And I want to sit at his table and I want to eat his food and listen to his voice and hear him tell me it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. You're, you really are on track. I've got you. But I imagine this moment where I'm like, okay, Lord, that's, that's good. That's, that's, like, that's like a Romans 8 right there. That's like a Philippians 4. You know, I'll, I'll take it. Hey, Lord, what are those? Those, those bowls that are all locked up. What, what are those? And he's like, oh, that's for later. Oh, oh okay. Is it, uh, well, what's in it? What, what's in those bowls? Stuff. Okay. Is it good stuff or bad stuff? Now I am projecting 
a shallow, which I have at times, approach to a conversation with Jesus and an understanding of his deep and eternal truth. And I don't know if you do this, but I totally do this. Where I, if something doesn't go well, I imagine him talking to me like this. Stuff. Nope. Can't tell you. Maybe. Almost like he's indifferent. And it's good to look at difficult verses and remember the character of God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to open the cupboard. We're going to open the cupboard and we are going to get some of those bowls off the shelf and look inside. Revelation chapter 15, verse one. Here we go. Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. That's awe-inspiring? Okay, John. For with them, God's wrath will be completed. You know, I was really looking for Romans 8 today, but okay, God's wrath. I also saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had won the victory over the beast, its image, and the number of its name were standing on the sea of glass with harps from God. And they're singing. They're singing the song of God's servant Moses. And if you know your Old Testament, you're like, oh, I remember that. There's that Moses and Miriam and Aaron, they were singing after God split the waters and they won and like all the Egyptians are dead and here's a million Israelites standing there in the desert. Yay! Song of Moses. They wrote this long thing, but it's the song of Moses and the song of the lamb. Oh, new song. Cool. New song. Like it. And here's some of the lyrics. Great and awe-inspiring are your works. I don't know. They do music, though. Lord, <laughs> you got to be music, you know. Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways. King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? You alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you. Put your least favorite nation in that category right now. Just in your head. Who's somebody you're afraid of? Who's somebody maybe you've kind of put down a few rungs as far as people because of bad things that some people in their country have done? Let's just just do it. All nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked in the heavenly temple, the tabernacle of testimony was opened and out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues dressed in pure bright linen with golden sashes wrapped Around their chests, one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls. Just a little side there. Anybody remember what the prayers of the saints were put in? Bowls. Hmm. Are they mixed? Are these things calling things forth? Is there a partnership between the body of Christ and what God is doing on the earth? Good questions. So gave them the bowls. Filled with the wrath of God. That should cause you to just wince a little bit in your spirit. Yeah. Okay. Who lives forever and ever. Then the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So John starts with, I saw a sign. And it's a reminder to us that... (laughs) 
the symbolic metaphorical things that are being displayed, like angels with bowls, represent deeper truths, real, real things, but not necessarily a real bowl, but represent a bigger thing that God is doing. And so we are called to listen to these phrases, hear the vision, see the music, taste the word, touch the eternal. It's kind of how scripture likes to talk. And it's, it's okay for you to enter into that kind, those kind of categories. It doesn't mean that any of this is not real or that it's not representing real things. It's just the language of apocalyptic literature. And you want to kind of get those categories in your tool belt. So what does he see? Seven angels, number of perfection, seven last plagues, should be ringing some bells, seven trumpets, seven seals, seven spirits of God. It lets you know God is behind this. This is God. This is perfection. This is him doing his thing. And it's going to bring a completion to the wrath of God. Now we're going to jump into the wrath of God in a minute, but just keep it as a category. That is the context. Sea of glass mixed with fire. Water in the Bible is symbolic, real at times. We've got Noah and the flood. He flooded the whole earth. We've got the children of Israel, what we just talked about a minute ago, millions of people standing in front of an ocean and it needs to be parted. We have Genesis chapter one and the spirit of God was hovering over the darkness and the chaos of the waters. So the waters represent death. They represent chaos. And what do we have here? Perfectly still. Sea of glass mixed with fire. And they're not trying to get through it. They're not being drowned by it. What are they doing? We're standing on this, baby. We are standing on the water that God has stilled, and it is mixed with fire. How does that work? One commentator said, this is God having completed things, and they have been baptized in the Spirit of God. And so you've got them standing there in the work of Jesus. Those who had won the victory. And I think these represent the people of God throughout all of history. They have said, we're not taking the mark of the beast, the number of imperfection, 666. We are marked by God. We've overcome the beast and its image. They're standing there and they are singing. They're worshiping. So it's the context of why they're worshiping that should cause you to pause at least, or maybe bother you, which is this. Why are they worshiping? What prompts the singing? What spiritual ground are they standing on? God is pouring out his wrath. God's wrath is coming. So let's worship. What? So it's destruction. It's everything's being destroyed. There's rubble. Things are going down. And here we are in the church and we're like, let's have a worship service. That alone should cause us to say, okay, what am I, what categories need to change in my heart? What am I missing that I have not experienced? Why would I praise God for his wrath? Imagine you had a friend and said, hey, I want you to meet this guy. He's so kind. He's super funny. Life of the party. You got to meet him. And I just know he's going to love you. And you're like, okay, fine. So you walk up to meet this new friend who's amazing. And the friend whispers to you before you get there and says, oh, by the way, sometimes he can kind of get angry and he'll like 
blow his top. So, I mean, hopefully it won't happen here, but just so you know, every once in a while, kind of wrathful. Would you be like, you know, I'm good. I, I don't need to meet your friend. <laughs> Why would we praise God for his wrath? First time God describes himself in the Bible is to Moses in Exodus 34. And he says this, I'm a compassionate and gracious God. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in faithful love and truth. I maintain faithful love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I also will deal with sin through the generations. I won't let anything go. So it's kind of this amazing character stuff and also this difficult thing at the end, but there was one part, I don't know if you caught it, it's this little sticker in the middle. We love the fact that he is loving. We love the fact that he's compassionate, that he's gracious, that he forgives and he pardons our sins. And then it says, and he's slow to what? Anger. Why does he have to be angry at all? Why does he have to be angry at all? So I'm gonna, you, I don't know, you have growth edges. I have growth edges. And I'd say, this is one for me. I've been learning that I don't want a God who doesn't get angry. What does that mean? A good God, he says he's good. He says he's kind. He says he's compassionate. A good God will not look at the Holocaust and go, oh, well, it's kind of hard, but what can I do? A good God will not look at somebody who's hungry and they're hungry because somebody has kept them from food and like taken it away from them or hurt them or something. A God doesn't sit back and go, yeah, I mean, I don't get angry. So I'm just steady, steady and loving. Really good. That's who I am. Is that the God we want? No, we want God to say, I am not going to let that happen. I'm against anything that comes against my good creation. So this guy named Leon Morris, he gives a definition like this. The wrath of God is God's strong and settled opposition to everything that is evil. It comes from his nature. It's who he is. It's a burning zeal for the right. Coupled, listen to this, with a perfect hatred. I didn't even know there was such a thing. A perfect hatred for everything that is evil. So here's my translation. God is committed to opposing and removing evil from his good and perfect creation and creatures. He's committed to you. Nothing will stop him from both holding back the flood of darkness. And so I want you to imagine darkness as this flood of waters trying to overtake you, drown you, kill you. And I want you to see Jesus and God in his grace and his common grace literally standing around you and the world and preventing it from just being consumed by evil and darkness. He's committed to not only just holding it back, but then, and we're going to learn about this, he actually says, and I'm going to take it on. And I'm not letting it do this forever. At some point, I will Send it to a permanent place where it can no longer harm my good creation. That's God's wrath. And so I think I can get, I can maybe get on board with that. I, I need to understand. So when they see 
that God won't just go, oh, well, I know that happened. Those people got killed. That little girl got abused. Oh, well. No, when they see God say, I won't let that happen, they say, we worship you. We praise you for being somebody who does something about the wrong in the world. And it's, it, he won't miss anything. New Testament says there's not a thing that's hidden that won't be uncovered. Everything will be handled. He will answer every wrong and deal with everything. That is his wrath. But they also worship because they used to be consumed by it. They're standing on a sea of glass now, mixed with fire, baptized in the Holy Spirit, standing on the foundation of Jesus and what he's done for them. And they go, that was me. <laughs> that was me. I was in that. I was overwhelmed and consumed and I praise him. So summary, this first section, opening vision, wrath is coming. God's ultimate wrath will come and the people of God worship because of it. Just to open, chapter 16, verse one. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first went and poured out his bowl on the earth and severely painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped his image. Now, if we keep with our archetypal kind of categories of the, the beast and those who follow the beast, basically anybody that doesn't follow Jesus. If you find yourself in that place at the end, you are the one who follows the beast. So anybody, anybody that is anti-God and Jesus and is re resisting him can fall into this category. That doesn't negate a possibility of a Significant group of people in the end times that might be a literal group that are following a supercharged demonic leader, okay? That stuff is still possible, so we're not taking that away. But as a general rule, when you read apocalyptic literature, you kind of have to have these big categories. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. It turned to blood. Where, where do we have something in the Bible where water it was a plague and water was turned to blood? Where? Yeah, Egypt. Egypt. So you're, you're uh, the bells in your head. Do you have bells in your head? I have bells in my head. They should start going ding, 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 ding. Something's happening. And all the fish died, all the, the animals, all the sea, all life in the sea died. The third poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water. They became blood as well. And I heard the angels say, you are just. God, you're just, you don't sit around. You don't hold back. You don't just say, oh, well, you're the one who was and is, and you have passed judgment on these things. And you know what? You've said, they actually poured out the blood of the saints. They persecuted my people and my name and the prophets. So you're kind of getting what you deserve. They deserve it, Lord. And I heard the altar say, now, how does an altar speak? It's another clue just to remember, we're looking at, metaphorical, symbolic things. The altar spoke, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. Scientifically, we know, if you've studied it all, you listened to it all in class. What do we know about the sun? If it was mere feet further away from the earth, what would happen? We would freeze. If it was mere feet closer, what happens? We burn up. And so God says, mm. 
He just nudges. Something happens here. Maybe it's physical, but I think it's pointing to bigger things. He is causing things to happen. He pours the bowl on the sun. It was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the intense heat. And so they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And the throne of the beast, the way we have defined it, Pastor Daniel preached on this first, and I kind of just picked up the theme. The beast, the sea, the beasts of the sea, the dragon, the antichrist. Easiest way to think about this is government, political, anything that has moved into a place of worship where we are trusting it over God. It's not the only interpretation, but it's a pretty good one, I think. And we would all experience that. Sometimes you find that place where you're like, no, I'm trusting in these things. And like, oh my gosh, they failed again. So God makes it fail. He pours it out over the throne of the beast and the kingdom is plunged into darkness. And people are so mad and frustrated. They're gnawing their tongues because of the pain. They blaspheme the God of heaven because of the pain and their sores, but they still didn't repent of their works. The sixth poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and the water dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Historically, Israel, the Euphrates River was this boundary that prevented Eastern nations from invading. And God says, eh, I'm drying it up. What am I doing? What is he causing to do? He's going to cause all of these nations to come before him. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, from the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits performing signs, travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them. So God is using this to get everybody to answer, to, to get everybody before him. And it's not just everybody at that time in the future. It's everybody from history. He's using his powers. He will even use evil things and move the chessboard to get people to respond to him. The whole world will assemble for the battle and the great day of God, the almighty. And then we have this really sweet moment where Jesus steps in and says, I have something to say. Look, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert, awake, and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. So they assembled the kings at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. So seven bowls, seven trumpets, seven seals. We've been here before. This is Exodus, like we said. It's tough stuff. It's painful sores. It's water turned to blood. It's a connection to anybody that killed the servants of God. They are getting what they do, scorched by the sun, political systems, government systems, worship, false idols, all being affected, all being messed with. They're the target of God's wrath. They will continue to try to uphold their authority, but they're going to be frustrated and fail, plunged into darkness. And God dries up any barriers, anything that people were relying on. For this was just a historical thing that those Jews who were listening would be like, oh yeah, the Euphrates, that was always the barrier. They couldn't come. They had to find a way around it or something, but it's dry. Oh my goodness, they can walk right in. They can walk right in. And it's God saying, exactly. I will let nothing protect you. You must face me. So here's the crazy thing. I was reading this all week and here's all these bowls. And I'm like, well, I could, we could go into major detail in the bowls and, and we'll probably just do some of that in the podcast. But what I was drawn to and I know I've encouraged you when you walk into the garden of the Lord and his word 
and you're noticing all the things, something will stand out, a tree, a flower, something. And you'll be like, that has my attention today. And what had my attention was this, mercy. I see mercy in the bowls. How can there be mercy in judgment? How can there be mercy in judgment? It just looks like destruction, fire, and scary. And how is this possible? Good question. Look at the number of times they were given to repent. And they didn't. And it's almost as if John is telling you over and over again, this happened and then they still didn't repent. And so God, another, this reminds you of anybody in that same story from Exodus? What happened to Pharaoh? Sure, I'll let him go. No, I changed my mind. <laughs> like, and it's, there's this crazy spiritual thing happening in his resistance to God. What's happening to his heart? Getting more and more calloused and tough and hard. So when we persist, let's keep that in mind. Mercy is available, but when we persist in sin, something happens. And if I want you to be, this, this really bothered me this week. In Romans chapter one, for God's wrath is revealed, is revealed, not is going to be revealed. It is revealed now from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And you keep reading and in verse 24, it says, therefore, God gives them over. That verse should bother the snot out of you. What does that mean? God gives them over. So wrath, and I think this is the question I ask, can God's wrath be both a current experience and a future final, final wrath? I think Paul says, yeah, yeah, it is revealed and it's coming. As people reject Jesus, as you say no to him on something he's trying to do in your life, you exchange the truth for a lie, God will honor your free will and sometimes give you over to your sin and then something will happen to your heart in the process. So this is where I want you to just take this and get a spiritual soberness to this. It can mean that he, if he gives you over to your sin, you go deeper into your sin. That isn't just you. And that isn't just the bad of sin. That can be a current experience of the wrath of God on your life that you actually go deeper into your sin because he's saying, I want you to turn to me. And you're like, no. And he's like, oh, okay. I will let you, I will let you, you become more intent on burning everything down, more calloused, more hardened to him. This should terrify us, but there's mercy because at the same time, he will allow not only you to go deeper, but he will allow the consequences of our sin. If there's something that I pray for, for people that don't know Jesus yet, or they have not given themselves fully to a 
Brandon, my friend Brandon calls a predetermined yes to God before he even asks you. He starts, yes, <laughs> whatever it is, yes, I'm with you. But having done that, you know, what I, you know what I pray for? I pray for two things. One, an encounter with Jesus that is undeniable. That even if you have the worst days coming up and you're like, I don't know if I believe him today. And you're like, yeah, but that was real. I cannot deny that. And I've had a lot of those throughout the years. But I also pray for a second thing. Make them hate their sin. Make it disgusting. Make it not satisfy them, Lord. Please show mercy. Don't give them over to it. Show mercy. Give them an opportunity to repent. So bowls are poured, destruction. And notice John is reading this and has it happened yet? No, the fullness of it, not yet, but it is happening in small ways. I think they're probably individual members of those churches who were like, ah, I need to pay attention. I don't want to. And why am I hardened in my heart towards the Lord? Don't, let's not mess around with the possibility of God giving us over to our sin. Let's not do it. Mercy becomes crystal clear when Jesus speaks. Verse 15, he says, hey, I'm going to say something. <laughs> In the middle of all these bowls that are being poured out, I'm going to say something. I am coming. I am coming. And if you are stuck in this resistance place and rebelling and experiencing my wrath, it could be like a thief for you. Or you could be awake and alert, like he says. And obviously he's not talking about real clothes and people walking around naked. Okay, symbolic. Because what does Paul say? Put on Christ. Put on Christ. Wear his righteousness. Are you clothed in Jesus? Are you awake? Then he won't come as a thief. So how will we respond? Paul asked the same question in Romans 2. Do you despise the riches of his kindness? Do you despise his restraint and patience in your life? Are you not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who, who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. Romans 2, 4 to 8. And it will lead to a final day. Don't wait. <laughs> Don't wait for that final day before you respond. Last few verses. Verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. A loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake occurred like no other since people have been on the earth. So great was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. The cities of the nations fell. As a reminder, not one nation, not one city, institution, no matter how good, how great, how whatever, not one will stand. 
in the end, there will not be one nation being like, well, we did great though, right, Jesus? No, not one. All fell. Babylon the Great was remembered in God's presence. Babylon, for sure, there could be a final Babylon that is like this awful, evil place on the earth, on the physical earth. But archetypally, Babylon started all the way back at Babel. That's another way to say Babel, Babylon. What did Cain do when he sinned and was sent away? He built a city. The cities of the nations will fall. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Every island fled and the mountains disappeared. Enormous hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell from the sky on people and they blasphemed God for the plague of hail because that plague was extremely severe. So some tools to put in your Bible reading belt. This is day of the Lord language. And if you don't know about the day of the Lord, it's a good thing to learn about because in the Old Testament, the, I'll put this in my notes. The Old Testament is lit up with the day of the Lord. It's everywhere. Isaiah 2, Isaiah 13, Isaiah 9, Ezekiel 30, Joel 1, Joel 2, Joel 3, Amos 5, Obadiah 15, Zephaniah 1, Malachi 3 and 4. The day of the Lord is coming. It was so prevalent in the Old Testament that they just started calling it the day. Jews would just say the day. They're like, oh yeah, the day. It's coming, the day of the Lord. And so this is day of the Lord language. Has anybody ever seen an island fleeing or a mountain just disappearing? Everest, I saw Mount Everest just crumble and it became a lake. Everybody was swimming in the Everest Lake. No, it's, it's supposed to be exaggerated. What's it supposed to do? It's supposed to get your attention to say when this stuff is happening, Whatever these specific things mean on our current timeline, but also for people that lived and died and never made it, they were supposed to look at their current timeline and to ask the same questions. How is God bringing his current wrath? What is it leading to in final wrath? And so it's to get your attention. It's caused you to put your phone down and take a personal spiritual inventory to get your life in order for the day. The symbol of changeover, old earth to new heavens and new earth, the fulfillment of the kingdom, but not new. Prophesied over and over, chance after chance, patience, kindness, long suffering, forbearance, compassion, mercy, opportunity, turn, turn, turn. One thing I said in the first service, I'll say it again. Our idea of mercy will fall so far short of how great his mercy is. And our idea of wrath falls so short of what it will actually be. But there's one great hope, and this is where we'll finish camp just for a few minutes. And it's a hope if you want it. If you want it, you can say no. He'll honor that. Verse 17, let's look at it again. Seventh, poured out his bowl. Seventh angel, seventh bowl, perfection. God's plan, a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. It is done. It is finished. Where have I heard that before? It is finished. 
I think John saw and heard this vision of the revelation of Jesus, and he remembered another moment. Just outside the city walls of Jerusalem, about 60 years before, where they publicly killed dissidents and criminals, he watched God do something. He watched Jesus take on the powers of darkness. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate? Pilate's like, don't you know I could let you go? And he's like, you have no authority except what's been given to you. I lay my life down. Nobody takes it from me. He's taking on the powers of darkness. He is going into hell. That's why the Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell. As far as the literal nature of that phrase, I don't know. I just know that Colossians 2.15 says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. And I know also that in Revelation, it says that he has the keys to hell and death. He had to go somewhere to get them. He took it on. Yes, he was, he was overwhelmed. His body was overwhelmed with violence to be killed. But don't you mistake that moment for him not being crowned king of the nations and going and punching death in the mouth and saying, this is mine. They're mine. He lays down his life. He absorbs the wrath of God. And while John couldn't completely understand it yet, the words would eventually come. Scriptures would flow from his pen and the testimonies of his friends and John would eventually write with the help of the Holy Spirit these words in his first gospel I know we all know John 3.16, but John 3.36 says this, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. And listen to this. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Remains on him. Meaning, it is being revealed now, and yes, it will have a fulfillment in the future that you don't want. It is finished if you want it. So some questions. Is the wrath of God coming? Yes. Will those who persist in rejecting him store up wrath for themselves? Yes. Can your heart get more calloused and hardened to God and experience his wrath now? Yes. Was the wrath of God poured out on Jesus? Absolutely. What if I reject Jesus? John, answer that one for me one more time. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. The one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Islands are fleeing. Mountains are sinking. The earth is shaking. Nations are falling, splitting. Everything's being exposed. Hailstones that weigh 100 pounds Whatever that means in the future could be both exactly that it really is, the earth crying out and making 100-pound hailstones, but also just something else really bad that causes people to either say, Lord, we welcome your justice or spiritual bird. Seriously, that's, they blaspheme. Even when the hailstones are coming down, they're like, we're so mad at you. We don't want this. Stay away. And God will, at some point in the future, 
accept your decision to be a part of this thing that he's holding back and this thing that he is pushing out and separating and dividing away from his good creation, whatever hell is. And yes, there's a lot of metaphors in scripture, both flames and darkness. How's that work? It's because it's metaphor, but it's metaphor to tell you it's worse than that. <laughs> it's worse than that. You don't want it. But what we know it is, because God says it, if you say to him, I reject your work, I reject your resurrection, what you did for me, I'll take my chances on my own. Then God says, okay, I'll honor that. And I will separate you from me for eternity. That's the truest meaning of hell right there. Romans 5, 8, worship team, come on up. God proves his own love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from, what's our word for the day? Wrath. How much more will we be saved through him from wrath? The pastor that I've listened to before says, move your judgment day to 33 AD. Move it, accept it, listen to his voice. Do not take your chances for a future judgment day. Mine got moved. Mine was moved. 33 AD. I was on his mind, on his heart. My sins were taken. <clears throat> Wrath reserved for me was taken, but not because I did anything, <laughs> because of what he did. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for just the, I'm loving, I'm loving the depth and the nuance and the complexity of your word. I cannot believe how a book that is over 2,000 years old could be burning like a bright fire in the churches of, that originally received this. And Lord, I can be sitting in my office or at my house and I'm thinking about it and it's burning a hole in me. How does that work? God, that's your spirit. It's your spirit. You're coming after us. You're pursuing us, Lord. You're holding things back. Lord, I pray right now that you would bring conviction. Your spirit soften hearts. Give us a picture of grace. Give us a picture of the throne room. God, our spot is supposed to be standing on that sea of glass and fire with full comprehension and understanding of what you've done, who you are, how you're making things right. God, we know that your grace provides even the ability to think about these things. So I ask that you take it a couple steps further, that you would bring not just thinking, but conviction. You would bring an experience of your presence. You would bring a legitimate disgust at our sin 
And God, we would know your great love for us and we would say yes to you. We ask that you uh, minister to us now, speak to us as we sing one more song together. Amen. Let's stand and sing.